podcast one production. Our next guest decided to become a lawyer at the age of 11. She is Professor Larissa Berent a Urali Gamilaroi woman who now is Professor of Law and Director of Research at the Jabana Indigenous House of Learning at the University of Technology, Sydney. She is a remarkable person by any measure and obviously was from the age of 11. But that's not all. No. Larissa has an extraordinary array of talents. Uh, she's a, she's a novelist. She's written a number of legal books. She's directed an amazing documentary, in fact, a number, and she just seems to seamlessly pull all of that together. What an interesting and fascinating career. We must not forget, she is also the first Indigenous woman to graduate from Harvard Law School. So we are delighted to welcome Larissa to Women with Clout. We are, and what a woman of many talents. Aside from your incredible distinguished legal career, your work as a, as a novelist, a writer clearly of many books, uh, is amazing, and also as a director. And fantastic, Larissa, to see your documentary After the Apology, which came out at the Adelaide Film Festival in 2017, has continued to win accolades and awards. I'd love to hear the story behind it. Where, what, where did that come from? Well, the issue itself uh, started coming up in my legal practice because we run a clinic through the Jambana Institute and not surprisingly, given the numbers of children in out-of-home care were increasing within the Aboriginal community, that we saw an increasing number of cases coming into the clinic where uh, parents were making claims of wrongful removal and grandparents had been deemed unsuitable for care of their own grandchildren, some of whom had already been in their primary care. And these were women who had jobs, owned their own homes, no issues with substance abuse, never had child protection in their lives before. So it became quite a disturbing trend to see the number of cases we had where when you get to the first court date, which is sort of eight months along, the courts were saying that the children shouldn't have been removed. And it's one of those issues that's so emotional and lots of sound bites around it. And as soon as people hear docs are involved, there's almost a natural assumption to assume, well, something must be wrong or they they wouldn't be there. Um, That actually I felt and and my colleagues felt that this was an issue that, that kind of needed the time for a feature documentary to really unpack the complexities and to tell a range of stories that challenged the assumptions many people would have had about the sorts of people who find themselves questioned by children's services. And I guess the other thing about it was child protection is a state issue, but these trends of increased Aboriginal child removal, which have doubled since Kevin Rudd's apology, are national. So there's something really systemic going on that we see the same kinds of issues. So it was a way of kind of breaking out of that. I guess a long time ago, I realised that You know, I became a lawyer to change the world. And after a year doing family law at Parramatta Local Court, I realised that wasn't really what I'd imagined (laughs) when I was watching watching Law and Order and thinking (laughs) that's what I'm going to... Or Atticus Finch in To Kill a Mockingbird. (laughs) It wasn't quite that. And I guess over time started to realise that law reform is not just about 
strategic cases. And it's certainly not about the churn of cases, but is probably more a hearts and minds exercise as well. So storytelling becomes a really big part of that. So it might feel like filmmaking and novel writing and law are kind of eclectic different things, but actually they're really, for me, they've been mostly part of the same project. It's really interesting that you say you decided you wanted to be a lawyer to change the world and you made that decision when you were 11 years old, which is fairly precocious, I think we'd have to say. (laughs) (laughs) What is it about who you were, how you were brought up, the expectations on you that made you at 11 make such a decision and then follow it through? I think I really have to say that that was the result of both of my parents. My father, who was Aboriginal, his past now, was really fundamental in my life in terms of my cultural identity. Um, He was really involved with um, the community in Redfern. So I grew up listening to people like Gary Foley and Chicka Dixon and and Bobby Sykes. So that was, and every Saturday we used to march. Like I thought that's what you did. You just (laughs) went for a march. Saturday morning, Saturday morning march. You were either there or you were at the racetrack. That's how life worked with my dad. Um, So it was kind of just a normal part of of my life, that politics. And my mother, who's not Aboriginal, also had a very strong sense of social justice. She, She was very respectful of my Aboriginal heritage and very encouraging of it and always taught me to be proud of it, but she didn't impose herself in that part of the community. I think she always felt that wasn't her role to be so immersed in it. She would drop me at uncle's house or auntie's house and really encouraged me to be active in that community and has always been really proud of it. But her her sense of social justice was very strongly around women's issues. She was one of those women who had a great career in the Navy, worked in intelligence in Canberra, but had to leave when she got married. Mm. So had real, so had really suffered under that systemic sexism that crippled the potential of so many women. And she's an incredible person. So even today, she has a very strong sense of um, the importance of the strength of women and, and has a kind of radar out for anything that might be remotely sexist. Don't get us started on Tony Abbott. I'm just saying. <laughs> Don't <laughs> it's get like a any, red rag any of us. So I think it was a combination of both of them, really. Yeah. How extraordinary. And you, but but otherwise, you lived a fairly you know, conventional suburban life for a girl from the Shire. You went to Kirawee High. You know, you weren't kind of plucked out and seen as kind of special early on, really, or were you? Um, no, I don't think so. I don't think if you saw me at Kirawee High School, you would have thought that's the one who's going to go to Harvard. <laughs> and I tell them that when I visit so yeah. that, you know, don't think you can't do things that are extraordinary. But um I guess it, it, it was conventional in that sense, but I was very lucky. You know, I used to get to go to the Wallaga Lake Mission over over summertime or out to Walgard, and I did actually get quite a strong cultural immersion, and I certainly could feel I knew a different history of Australia and a different politics than every other child at my school, which is at a time when they didn't even teach about the removal policy, yet here was a policy that had fundamentally shaped my Aboriginal family. So I kind of got a sense that there was a project that needed fixing. And my father and my mother were both really hard workers, both had had that experience of not finishing high school. 
my um, my mother's father wanted her to be a secretary, so she basically ran away from home and joined the Navy. And Dad was a street kid. He'd come out of an orphanage, lived on the streets, joined the Navy. He said he saw this poster that said, see the world and get three meals a day. And he said, three meals a day, sign me up. So both of them had come from a background where they'd really made something of themselves and they both have really strong work ethics. And I think both my brother and I really inherited that. And mum was the sort of person who'd just say, he'd just come home and say, mum, I'm going to be a ballerina. And she'd say, I always knew you'd be a great ballerina. You'd be the best ballerina ever. And the next day I'll be an astronaut. You'd be the, I've always said to everyone, you'd be the best astronaut ever. So I think that very simple thing of having parents who were really supportive of any ambition you had. Yeah, my my mother was very similar to the point (laughs) where in later life she really promoted all of us, you know, to the point where we were running whatever (laughs) organisation we were working for. It was a standing family joke. But I must say that wonderful unadulterated support is, of course, priceless. Mm. And so I want to take you forward a little bit. Um, You obviously studied law in Australia, but, but then went to Harvard. What an extraordinary culture change for you. Tell us a little bit about that. It was. And I ended up at Harvard out of fear, I've got to say. <laughs> I'm, not oh, a great, do. I'm not a great inspirational speaker on this because my father at the time was in a relationship with Bobby Sykes, who was the first black Australian woman to go to Harvard. And I had had that experience of working at legal aid and thinking, you know, this is not what I want to do with my life. I liked being at university, I liked the way in which I found a voice. My brother and I used to write for the university newspaper about issues of policing in Redfern and all sorts of things. I kind of felt like I'd found my voice a bit during that time. I loved the intellectual life of university and finding more people who had similar values and interests that, that, that I did in my circle of friends. So I kind of thought, well, you know, I'll go back and do some extra study. And I just thought, well, I'll go back to UNSW where I did my undergraduate graduate degree. And I remember sitting around the table with dad and Bobby and saying that, and Bobby just said, well, you'll apply to go to Harvard. And I don't know if you ever met her, but she was a pretty (laughs) ferocious woman, right? And I thought, well, there's no way I'll get in. But, you know, she sat me down at the kitchen table and she had the forms and we filled them all in and sent off the school. She knew everything about what you needed to do. And I just thought, well, I'll just do this because it'll be easier than saying no to her. (laughs) And the next thing I was on a plane to Boston going, how did this happen? So, I mean, I guess, and it was the most wonderful opportunity that I ever had, but nothing I could have ever imagined for myself. And and I think the thing that was, was wonderful about it was I obviously didn't get selected to go in because I was the the university medalist because I wasn't. But what they looked at, because they take a, a mm. kind of view of having a lot of diversity uh, in their in their year. So they'll have people doing all different types of law, whether it's environmental, corporate, they try to get a mix. But also they have a mix of people who are university medalists and people who've just done a lot of community activity. And I meet these wonderful overachieving kids at university who have quite a plan for how their community work will lead to these opportunities. I didn't have any of that. I didn't know that world. I didn't know anyone who went to university when I was growing up. So it was um, this kind of wonderful thing where she saw the potential and saw what it would be for me before I could see it myself. So I felt very lucky to have had that. Mm, Invaluable. It's incredibly important, I often think, for women 
particularly perhaps of our generation, I think we're a little bit older than you, Larissa, but that we had to have some woman somewhere who had done something Mm. like Bobby for you to give us that uh, almost an opening, a bit of a a feeling like, oh, the the box is not as tightly narrow as Mm. we thought it was and that this idea of a female role model was particularly important and obviously broadening women's horizons. And Mm. I think it's no wonder, of course, particularly Jane and I, our age group, mm. we, we we didn't have those broadened horizons. So somebody else saying, well, of course you can. Of course you can apply for that is is an extraordinary way of, of changing. In fact, changing your life. It, 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 amazing. I wondered, you mentioned before Parramatta Local Court, obviously <laughs> not where you wanted to be. Where did you find your sweet spot, I guess, um, given you have such a diverse range of strings to your bow? But I was just thinking when you came back from Harvard, what, what happened then and where did you find your career path? Well, I had always, even when I was, um, when I was working at Parramatta Local Court, I, I started teaching when I was an undergraduate in the Aboriginal Studies program at UNSW and I kept teaching and when I came back, so I did my master's at Harvard and again, I one of my teachers during my master's course encouraged me to apply for the doctorate and I didn't think I'd get in but he encouraged me and I got in and they only tell you a couple of days before you're due to come home and I had no scholarship money anyway. So I came back for a year and I taught at UNSW Law School and then just worked part-time in a law firm that, that my brother's now a partner in. So I kind of always did a bit of practice and a bit of teaching. And then when I came back from overseas, I'd finished my master's, done my doctorate and I spent a year working in Canada. And I was over there and I got a job offer from ANU to just do a postdoc. I hadn't really thought about what I wanted to do, but it was one something. So I came back and then I got the job at UTS. And I think, again, it was just a very lucky thing that I kind of knew I didn't want to be a full-time practicing lawyer. I knew that there was more to whatever it was that I wanted to do. I couldn't have told you what it was then. And I don't think I could have told you until probably a couple of years ago about the fact that part of, I think, what's allowed me to have such a diverse range of interests and um, have an unconventional path, but one that's very rewarding, was that I was lucky enough to choose a university as a base and a university that valued the different aspects of what I wanted to do. So I... I don't pretend that every university would be like this because I've worked at others that aren't so much, but UTS has always been a really great employer by understanding that the work that I do outside of the the strict academic work is important work and it's good for them that I do it. But also, I think they also understand that employees don't necessarily want one career path and to keep good employees, you have to make a kind of workplace where they'll flourish. And I felt that that's what they've created for me. And I, I'm not hugely ambitious, and it sounds weird, but but the usual path for somebody like me is to become a PVC or DVC in mm. Indigenous. And I have zero interest. And in fact, I came into the university... PVC, DVC? So to either become a pro-vice-chancellor or a deputy vice-chancellor in the Indigenous space. That's where the usual career path is. And in fact, I took my first job at UTS to run the whole of the Indigenous programs. And when that contract was up, I took effectively a demotion to just run the research because that's where my passion was. 
So you're in your sweet spot now. I am. I didn't even realise it, but I, I feel like I pretty much am. <laughs> so where was the opposite? What has been the most difficult times? The, what have been the barriers? What's been the times when you felt, I can't get past this? Um, that's a really good question. And there have been a few in different ways. It has often been the case from particularly, I felt this at at school, high school, university, where you're the only Indigenous person in the space. And that makes things quite, that's always been quite hard. And I think just generally coming from a working class background and from public schools, at least at the time when I went to UNSW, that wasn't wasn't the norm. It wasn't unusual, but it wasn't the norm. Most people came from private schools. And I guess I've always battled with a sense of, do I, is it really my right to be here? As I think a lot of women, a lot of Indigenous people, a lot of people who are kind of outsiders. Working class people Working as class well. people. Mm. You, I remember always, I remember going and enrolling both when I first stepped onto the UNSW campus and also when I went to enrol at Harvard and just having this dread that they were going to say to me, there's been a mistake and you're not supposed to be here. And I don't think I really ever came to terms with the fact that I deserved to be there and I'd earned it and I'd worked hard for it. syndrome, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. And the doctoral program I did was a four-year course and I did it in three years. And there's often been times when I've felt like I have to outperform everyone else. And I didn't waive my master's because I'd worked really hard for it, whereas a lot of people do. So that was extra coursework I had to do on top of that for my doctorate. I've never been afraid of the hard work. I just, I guess it's that thing that you often feel about am I worthy of it? And I think I still, with all the cheerleading my mum's done and, and, you know, I just, I think it's it's just a natural thing that you have to struggle with. Mm. And always, always everything I've done, people will say, well, she's just got that because she's Aboriginal. It's as though the admission to Harvard was, you know, something that was given. Tokenistic. It was tokenistic. Mm. It was, you know, something that wasn't deserved. Um, people felt sorry for me, all of those things. That That is still something that you hear all the time. And the other thing I say to people, which is actually something I heard Jane say, and it has always stuck with me as well, um, and that is once at a, we were at a conference and um, Jane said, um, people often say to me, um, I'm paraphrasing you. Yes. So <laughs> hopefully not verbally. Feel free. Feel um, free. People often say to me, um, you know, you can't say that you're a middle class privileged white woman. And if I don't have the ability to speak out, then who else is going to do it? I've got the responsibility. And I thought that was such a great comment. And it, it also helped me think about my position of privilege within my own community you know, and, and the, the responsibility we have to speak out. And I often get asked that question, you know, how can I say something? I'm a white person, these are Aboriginal issues. And I, my feeling is always, if there's a human rights violation and you don't agree with it, you should speak out. But then I also will remind them of what Jane said about the fact that actually use your privilege, use your position 
and don't be afraid to use it. You have a responsibility to use it. Think of the people who don't have the ability to say that and what you're doing for them. So there's a bravery in that. But I've always found that to be excellent advice and I've carried it with me. It's so interesting, isn't it? Because it's almost like the flip side and either side of, in a way, being an Indigenous woman doing things for the first time and entering spaces which you don't feel entitled to enter is that other people then almost emphasise that by saying, oh, you only got it for this superficial reason. It's like a double whammy. Mm -hmm. And I think that's something that women also feel. I don't think to the same extent necessarily as obviously women with intersectionality, which you clearly have. But the upside of that is that we don't have that sense of entitlement Mm -hmm. that seems to be actually crippling a lot of perhaps more privileged people who have had a a more conventional, easier road, um, were expected from their private school to go into law school, to do this, do that, the next thing. The downside of that is the lack of richness you were talking about in terms of even at Kiriwee High School, you were having different experiences from the rest of your class and you have continued to have different experiences than your peers, it sounds to me, right mm. the way through your career. And that is actually a huge advantage. Yes. And I think the other thing in hindsight that I think was incredibly important for me was that my parents, both of them, had instilled such a strong sense of my own Aboriginal identity that that's actually been something that has always been a strength for me. So even if I feel like I'm floundering in the professional world, there I feel a strength within that that I've learnt to draw on more and more. So they have been challenges. And I, I think the other thing too I, I really struggled with a lot was that because I have become so privileged compared to other members of my community, I've, I've always felt an enormous obligation to give back and not that that's a burden, but I, I wasn't very smart or thoughtful about how I did that. And I just used to do, if anyone asked things of me, I would feel like I had to do it, which is not sustainable in terms of wellbeing. And it's, as you know, you do lots of things, you don't do any of them well. And I guess one of the things I've really had to learn was that the very wise thing that a lot of the aunties say, you know, take care of yourself before you take care of other people. And I've had to learn that. And also that I can say no and that there's a lot of self-determination in saying no and saying that's important work, but that's not my work. I just wanted to ask you, Larissa, mentioning the whole area of kind of imposter syndrome and battling that. I'm sure younger women often ask you, in fact, on that point of giving back, I'm sure they ask you, how do I handle that? Because I hear it all the time mm-hmm. and Jane does whenever we talk to audiences and having just, you know, uh, written a book called Womankind about women backing each other, which is an incredible source of strength. But a lot of the time they say, oh, I, I just feel like I can't wave the flag, you know, that I'll get cut down and penalised. And and we understand why they feel that. What sort of advice do you give? I mean, having gone through that and still grappling with it, yeah. what do you think is useful to tell? And I think them? what's hard about that is that there is an emotional aspect to it and an intellectual one. And the intellectual one's really easy. That is, people make us feel that way, so we'll shut up. Yeah. That's what the agenda is there. So speaking out and and uh, saying what you think is an act of defiance and it's, a, you know, an act of revolution in a way. So on an intellectual level, there's a, a good reason why you need to do that. Emotionally, I think that is much harder and and you're not able to do that unless you're able to create 
the space in your own life where you are nurturing yourself for that strength and resilience. And you can't build that if you're always out in the public. I think the challenge is, and this is something I've learned too, is we we give so much to our public lives and and we give so much of ourselves when we're in public from people filming us and taking our voice and quoting us and misquoting us and all those things. I think it's a an important lesson to learn how important it is in the private space as well. And especially in these days where people like to even take photographs of their food and share it, I think it's important to kind of have the part of your life that's private where you can just be yourself and and kind of nurture yourself and and rebuild the resilience you need to have to have the public life. And it took me a long time to appreciate that and a long time to get the balance right. But unless you have that strength within yourself and know that whatever happens when you're out there, that if you're going to get talked down or people inevitably will come at you, you need to have a place where you feel strong and safe and people have your back and you you can trust everyone there. So I guess for me, having an a home life that's supportive and loving is a a big part of that. So I think the networks for each other are really important. And I think that's a bigger commitment to ourselves than just the supporting other women. Obviously we need to do that too. But these are this is about a deeper nurturing and deeper checking in with people and a deeper sense of somebody else's well-being. Mm. It's interesting, isn't it? Because it's in one way when you are a trailblazer, which you clearly are, um, you are both fortunate in that every success you have is not just about self-aggrandisement. It actually has a flow-on effect to all the different communities that you represent, both women, uh, Indigenous Australians, etc. But there's a downside to that in that if you make a mistake, which inevitably we all do because we're all just human beings, flawed and unworthy, regardless of how other people might think of us, the problem with being put on any kind of a pedestal as a hero or a role model is that this fear of making a mistake, of letting people down, is so great. Have you grappled with that as well? Yeah, and look, I make heaps of mistakes. And I guess one of the things that I feel lucky in as I've gotten older is I care less about how that looks. And I care more about what I learn from things. And, you know, I I think that that's the sort of thing that's easy to say, but it does come with experience. And I can say that every time things haven't worked out for me or something's gone wrong, what's happened is I've been able to see the world with a different lens. In particular, I think one thing that happens when things go wrong is you do get a really strong sense of who your friends are. And the generosity you've shown to other people, it's a big test whether that comes back to you at the times that you need it. So for me, I've actually, I guess, through experience, realised that those times can be quite liberating. And I've had moments where those those times have allowed me to really see the people in my life who have not been productive and are quite toxic and to have the strength to say, well, actually, I don't know that there's space for you in my life and to focus on the people that are really important. I think it's been a big step in working out who's in that, you know, private world of mine. So I guess now I'm much more philosophical about it. And I, I, I've i never been somebody who's liked the limelight. I don't like speaking in public. I don't really like the attention and I never sought it. So 
I like that I like being less I like being more under the radar and I always think too the, the, uh, Sue Cato once gave me a really good piece of advice she said just remember nobody can take your talent from you mm. and I've always really loved that remembering that in a dark moment and uh, partly because when you engage with the things you love writing filmmaking, the things that are creative, playing the piano, whatever it is, they're the times when you sort of all, almost rebuild your soul a bit and and build your resilience. So, you know, I think those times you can look back and see that actually the testing is, has made you better, made you stronger and those things lead you to a happier life. I am the happiest now in my life that I've ever been and I wouldn't be here unless everything that had happened had happened and that's good and bad. So that's where I hope everyone gets to. I think we're very lucky that the 11-year-old Larissa (laughs) made the decision that she made and I think we're very lucky as a country to have you. Thank you so much for coming and talking to us, Larissa. Oh, that's such a nice thing. My mum would agree with you. (laughs) (laughs) Where with your mum? Absolutely, no question at all. Women with Clout is presented by Jane Caro and me, Catherine Fox, and created in collaboration with Podcast One Australia. Producer Liv Crown, theme music composed and performed by David Beckingham. For more episodes, go to podcastone.com.au, download the Podcast One app, or search Women with Clout on Apple Podcasts. 